This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. In just a few moments, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes and my conversation with a retired major general in the Nebraska National Guard, the author or co-author of a book that reveals how the reclusive eccentric billionaire aviation pioneer Howard Hughes faked his death and lived a secret life for another 25 years. Uh, Elbert, my story producer, is off tonight, so we'll have to postpone... A, a brand new segment we announced last week called What's in the Box. Uh, we'll, we'll do that starting next week. Albert fancies himself a remote viewer, or at least he's working on developing his remote viewing skills. Uh, so last week I said we'd start off the show with What's in the Box. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll conceal some object in a box, uh, place it on the, uh, the counter here in studio, and Albert will attempt to remote view What's in the box? We'll start that next week. Uh, please get on up to the website strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this radio program. Just click on the radio tab, strangeplanet.ca. Click on the radio tab, and uh, there you'll find the the website for this radio program, The Conspiracy Show. Please take a moment to, to register. It's fast, easy, and free. And also, of course, check out the live events tab at strangeplanet.ca because there is another Strange Planet Productions exclusive event coming your way Saturday, October the 15th. Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses featuring R. Gary Patterson with special Skype appearances by Peggy Sue Guerin, Buddy Holly's muse, Leo Lyons uh, of 10 Years After, and Bill Harry from Liverpool, lifelong friend of the Beatles and publisher of Mercy Beat magazine. That's Saturday, October the 15th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, 4 to 8 p.m. And you can purchase your tickets online on the live events page at strangeplanet.ca or... 
through Conspiracy Culture. Just visit conspiracyculture.com for more details. Hope to see you there. Now, the world believes that Howard Hughes died on April the 5th, 1976, at the age of 71, and that he was using the alias of John T. Conover when his body arrived at the morgue in Houston, Texas, on the day of his death. But the world may have to change what it believes about Howard Hughes after listening to my next guest, who is about to lay out some incredible evidence that Howard Hughes actually lived to be 96 years old and died as recently as 2001. Uh, in Alabama after assuming another man's identity in uh, 1969 and installing a mentally deranged drug addict imposter in his place. Howard Hughes supposedly was married to one Eva Renee McClelland for 31 years. Here to tell us all is Mark Music, who is a retired Nebraska Air National Guard Major General. Mark dedicated over a decade to uncover this story, which he never expected nor sought to tell. Mark Music, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, I'm fine, Richard. Thank you for having me. So let me go back to the beginning. First of all, uh, this is uh, history-changing information. I remember as I would have been 12 years old in 1976, uh, and uh, so many historical events I remember watching on my mother and father's TV set in their bedroom, uh, sitting on the corner of the bed when they discovered or when they flew a very emaciated-looking Howard Hughes, or the person we thought was Howard Hughes. Um, I'm not, I can't recall where they landed, but uh, he was uh, like in a, a medical um, helicopter or plane. And there he was on the gurney, and of course he died a short while later. Um, and now we're learning, of course, because of your research, Douglas Wells, Wellman's research, that that wasn't Howard Hughes who died in 1976. That's where the story begins. But let me go back a little bit further. You're an, you were in the, 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 Air, the National Air Guard in Nebraska. I mean, that's about as far from Howard Hughes' world as uh, you know, I can imagine. How did you get involved in this remarkable story? Well, that's a good question. I worked for a nonprofit organization, and I met a lady, um, her name was Eva McClellan. She lived in Alabama, and she wanted to leave some property to the nonprofit. And so I talked to her several times on the phone in 1999, 2000, and I knew her husband was getting up there in years, and I knew he had died in, uh, in November of 2001. I met her January 2002, and she started relaying this story to me that I thought was just absolute lunacy. It, it was total, total craziness. And her story was that she was married to Howard Hughes, and he had just died in 2001. And I, I, I thought it was, it was nothing could be true of this story. But as I listened to her over uh, months and years, nothing ever changed, no details, no, no um, information, no dates, no nothing. And then I thought, well, I'm going to start to research this thing and found out that what she was telling me was confirmable. It was all confirmable. And the story was that she met a, a tall, handsome man in 1969 in Panama, where she was working at that time. And she did not know who he was. He was using the name of Nick Nicoly. He had the idea of a, a man named Werner nicely, but he was using the name Nick. And he would just disappear. Uh, she wasn't sure where he went. They became engaged in March of 1970, and they were married in May of 1970. Did she know anything now prior to him revealing his identity 
Uh, did she know about Howard Hughes? Did she know what he looked like? Um, uh, she, well, Howard Hughes, of course, was in the news at that point in time, going back and forth from a long-haired, long-fingernailed, drug-addicted, bedridden, 90-pound man to a man who actually uh, had meetings with the president of Nicaragua, um, the governor of Nevada, and things like that, and they described him as a commanding man. Yeah, we should just explain the discrepancy there. You're right. I mean, towards the end of Howard Hughes' life, or who we thought was Howard Hughes, we have to keep uh, throwing that proviso in there, but the idea was uh, we were told that he was uh, living uh, at the, uh, in the penthouse of the, is it the Desert Springs Inn in, uh, in Nevada. Right, right. And uh, was surrounded by, you know, very controlling people and uh, was a, you know, an absolute germaphobe and had, again, long, scraggly hair, fingernails. For those that have seen uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator, uh, that's sort of the depiction, the, the depiction towards the end of his life. But at the same time, we were getting reports in the media that no, Howard Hughes is having meetings. He's conducting business. He's, you know, he's just as we remembered him, very dapper and and uh, you know together, very lucid. So we were having this these conflicting reports. And and he actually changed his looks. He lightened up his hair. He lightened up his hair, and he actually had surgery that he had uh, iris implants, blue implants, uh, implanted in his eyes. That was 1966. So he looked different. He really didn't look like Howard Hughes. But if he went to these meetings, he could make up to look like Howard Hughes again. Interesting. Did they have that technology to, to uh, iris implants in the late 60s? It was experimental. Ah, okay. Well, totally he certainly had the means. He had the means. Yeah. Yes. But he could buy anything he wanted to, and he bought himself another identity. The identity that he took was a man working for the CIA who basically disappeared uh, in the late 60s. We have no idea what really happened to him unless he's living under some other identity. But he was five foot 11. The identity that he took was a man who was five foot 11. We have all of his military records and medical records and things like that. So now we have five foot 11, a man who's now six foot four. <laughs> and it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't uh, all add up. Right. Howard Hughes was six foot four. Correct. And his alias, the late uh, Nick Nicoley, uh, former CIA operative, was five foot eleven, according 11. to his record. Correct. Okay, so Correct. Um, Eva McClellan meets this uh, gentleman down in Panama in the late 60s. They, they are engaged and they marry in 1970. And then, then what? When does he... When does she start to suspect that he is not who he says he is? Right at the beginning, she begins to put the pieces together. And it, it took her, because there's things that he did or things that he said, and, and it took her about uh, two to three years. And she knew who he was at that point. And then he finally revealed it to her in uh, 1975 is when he finally revealed it to her. And after that, uh, he, she could ask him anything about flying the, flying the Hercules about he talked about his childhood. Um, she could ask him anything, and he would answer it at that point in time because he basically let her know. Mark Music is uh, the co-author, along with Doug Wellman, of Boxes: The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. Now the second edition is out. It first came out about six years ago, and in the second edition, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the hour, uh, we'll reveal who the um, who the stand-in was. It wasn't Howard Hughes, according to their research, who who died in 1976, after living 
like a hermit in the penthouse of the uh, the the Desert Springs Inn. Um, is that is, is the Desert Springs in r- directly in Las Vegas, or is it in Henderson? Where is it? That hotel? Where was it? It was right on the Strip in Las Vegas. He owned about seven, six or seven different hotels there in Las Vegas, as well as an airport, as well as a TV station. Uh, he had quite a bit of property there in Las Vegas in the in the uh, late '60s and into the '70s. And again, you were uh, working in the uh, well. You were a a, uh, a general in the Nebraska Air National Guard uh, when you first met Ava McClelland, uh, who married this man, Nick Nicoley, who turned out to be Howard Hughes. Uh, she married him in, back in 1970. And it wasn't until 70, it was five years later, he finally admitted uh, who, she, who he was. And did, did, she, did she believe him immediately, yeah. or did it take a while? Yeah. She said she knew it by then. She had figured it out because he had given her clues all the way along. And she'd taken these things. Eva was a very, very smart lady, and she knew, kind of knew when to quit asking questions and when to quit bugging him and, and that type of thing. And so she put these things together. And so when he revealed it to her, she told me, I already knew it. I knew, already knew it was Howard Hughes. And where did they live in Alabama? It was in a, in a remote location, wasn't it? In Alabama, they, they, uh, they left Panama in the summer of uh, 72, and they moved to Arizona, and they lived in Arizona several different places, uh, 72, 73, and 74. They left Arizona in about April of 74 and moved to uh, west of Troy, Alabama, which is, which is where Eva basically grew up uh, in Troy, Alabama. And then they, they moved and moved and moved and moved there uh, in Troy, Alabama, near Troy, Alabama, for about five or six years, and they finally ended up on a on a wooded property, uh, remote wooded property west of Troy, Alabama, about six or seven miles. And did he have uh, bodyguards? Did he have a staff with him keeping an eye on him, or were they on their own? He had AIDS all the way along. Uh, He had AIDS when Eva first saw him in 1969. He had AIDS around him. She said he was always doing business. When they got married, he'd go out in the middle of the night, and make his phone calls and do business. He always had people going along. And then when they moved into uh, Arizona, again, they had people there with him. When they moved to Alabama, again, they had people there. And the, there was these aides, there were three, three, usually two or three around them, uh, went into uh, Florida. They moved with them. They were always around. In fact, Eva uh, saw them. Eva said, can I, can I meet your friends? And Nick said, no, that's way too dangerous. You can't meet my friends. But they were always there. Sometimes her car would break down, and they'd be there to, to help her uh, with that breakdown. And then when, when the stand-in died in 1976, April 1978, they just disappeared. They were gone then at that point. All right. Mark Music is with us. He is the co-author, along with Doug Wellman, of Boxes. The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. He lived on some 25 years after. Uh, we were told, or more than 25 years, I believe, uh, after we were told he died in 1976. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right here. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Mark Music, co-author of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. Just trying to do the math in my head. So he died in 1976, supposedly. Uh, now, he lived another 25 years, I think, correct? Correct. Essentially. He, d- All right. he died November of 2001. 2001. All right. So... Uh, in 1976, by this time, he's admitted to, uh, Howard Hughes has admitted to Eva, his wife, uh, that he is Howard Hughes. Uh, then the news comes on that uh, Howard Hughes died in 1976. So we need to talk about this stand-in. Uh, first of all, in 1970, Howard, moves to, Howard Hughes moves to, uh, to Panama, and he, or at some point he moves to Panama, and he meets Eva in 1970. So um, had he... I mean, how long had be had be had he been plotting uh, this this scheme where he would have a stand-in um, that you know was later identified as Howard Hughes in 1976? Well, it all kind of begins in 1966 when he had he went to uh, from from Los Angeles to Boston to have what they call eye surgery for an eye problem, and that's when he had this. Uh, we think that's when he had this iris implant. And so he started changing his appearance in 1966. At that point, he was married to a lady named Jean Peters. And Jean Peters, according to the books, never saw him after 1966. They were never, ever together Hmm. uh, ever since. So he started this thing in then. And it's really about 1969 that this long-haired, long-fingernail guy really comes into play. And that's the same time that Howard now is moved on this other identity. So they throw this long-haired, long-fingernail guy in there just to add total confusion on what's really going on. Well, I mean, Howard did have idiosyncrasies, more hang-ups than a Christmas tree, as we used to like to say. (laughs) Uh, And, and of course, Eva uh, attested to that, and she left him on a number of occasions because of that, but they always got back together because they were in love. But, I mean, um, how much of that, you know, the germophobia and all of that, how much of that was actually Howard Hughes? Uh, he was definitely a germaphobe. Eva, Eva made comments to me about, you know, she would uh, feed him and give him the food off stainless steel plates and things like that. And as I, would, as I was uh, taking Eva around, time, around town, if there was a, let's say we came to a parking lot and there was a, you know, an oil spot on the street, Eva said, oh, don't step on that. Don't step on that. No, Nick said, never step on that oil spots. And so he was quite a germaphobe. He also wore gloves. Uh, virtually continuously, he wore gloves, I think, for several reasons. One, he'd leave more fingerprints that way. The other one, he was a germaphobe, and he didn't want to you know, touch all these things. And then his hands were also damaged in that, in that aircraft accident in 1946. Right, right. He was flying an experimental aircraft. and His, ha- his hands were damaged, and they were very, very tender. We, we actually have a picture of We didn't have a picture um, this picture when the first book came out. But uh, shortly thereafter, a lady gave us a picture of, of Howard, of Nick, in 1990. And he's in the, uh, in the woods there in Alabama, and you can see his hands. It's a, it's, a, it's a close-up picture, or fairly close. And you can see that his hands are discolored. His hands were, um, uh, did, they didn't look normal. Right. Okay. Now, this stand-in, whose idea was that? 
I mean, and and was Howard, and what was Howard running away from? Howard had a, a I think it was Howard's idea just to cause confusion. Uh, he loved confusion. Eva would say she just laugh and laugh and said he loved confusion. He threw confusion in everything that he did, and so to throw this uh, this uh, uh, other man into it was perfect because now you couldn't tell what the truth was. They actually set up meetings with him. Now, in some of the meetings that they set up, they had this screen in front of him. And so the person who was, you know, having a meeting with him would say, well, I met with Howard, and, and, but there was a screen, and I really couldn't, couldn't get a clear picture of, of who he really was. Uh, other people said, well, his breath was atrocious. You know, his breath was just absolutely atrocious. It would knock you out. And so they'd, they'd have these uh, meetings with him to, again, cause more confusion of, of who really is Howard Hughes. And so you're saying the stand-in was occasionally the person that people would meet with, and uh, he would be he, he would hide behind this screen because what he didn't look a lot like Howard Hughes, or I mean, how how closely did the stand-in resemble the real Howard Hughes? I think th- I think they were near the same height. Now what we have learned is that he's about he was about 20 years older. Uh, so the stand-in was about 20 years older than Howard. Right. Right. And so that, so they, there wasn't a uh, result, but I think they were uh, near in height. And he knew, you know, he was a, he was a, a, he had some drug problems, but he knew he was being uh, taken care of uh, to be a to be a alternate for Howard. And and how did they find this person? How did they recruit him? Well, there's some, we're not we're not totally certain on that. There's several things we did learn that Howard uh, did have body doubles. Uh, he had body. He had people who looked like him, that he would send into meetings, um, and so the media would say, "Well, look at there's a, me- a fairly important meeting. There'd be Howard Hughes in the back of the room, <laughs> so there'd be a man who looked like Howard Hughes, but wouldn't say anything, wouldn't make anything, make any comments, and and but it, it would be a body double of Howard. So Howard was doing this um, uh, mix-up for years and years. In fact, what we found out is that even in the 30s and 40s. He was using uh, alternate names. He was using other names that I don't know how he got them, but he was using names of actual people, we believe. Um, and, and he did that almost all through his life. Was he it just a game? Alternate. Was it just a game, or was he taking some precaution? Well, as it got later on, as it got later on, Howard was tremendously involved with the CIA. Uh, in 1968, there was a Soviet submarine that sank, and the CIA came to Howard and said, oh, would you help us raise this submarine? We want to, we want to uh, see what the encryption device is on it so we can see you know, what kind of equipment and read messages and all that type of thing. And that's right the time that Howard came up with this other identity was in 69. That's when they asked him. And he went and did it. He'd say, yeah, I'll do it. What we think, this is speculation, what we think he said was, I'll go raise that submarine, and he did. You get me another identity. And the other identity was uh, with a CIA gentleman. Uh, and there's, things, there's indications that he was involved with the CIA. Uh, he controlled the CIA's communication satellites. Therefore, he could communicate with satellite phones. He could communicate without anybody tracing uh, his, his phone calls. Many of the books say they tried to trace his phone calls, could never, ever do it. Now it's, it's pretty clear that he was using CIA's communication satellites um, to communicate. So 
So he had lots and lots of interaction uh, with the CIA, probably starting um, speculation in the early early 50s, maybe even late 40s. Mark Music is uh, with us, the co-author, along with Doug Wellman of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. And uh, this is now the second edition, which uh, reveals uh, um, new photographs, uh, new evidence, the identity of the stand-in. And again, the crux of the, um, the, uh, the book is that Howard Hughes essentially faked his death. He had a stand-in living um, sort of as a hermit in the, uh, the penthouse suite of the hotel he owned, the, the, uh, the Desert Springs Inn on the Strip in Las Vegas. That wasn't him. We all saw on TV on that gurney in 1976 with the long stringy hair and the long fingernails and that emaciated shell of a man, uh, according to this theory. Uh, Howard Hughes took on a new identity, married a woman in Panama in 1970, and lived an additional 25 years uh, in a remote location in, in Alabama. Uh, now, why, why the name Boxes? What does that signify, Mark? Eva McClelland, uh, as, I, as I worked this, this book with her for eight years, it took me four years to believe it, but Eva McClelland uh, lived basically out of boxes because they had to be able to leave. He really wouldn't let her unpack. And so she lived for uh, years out of boxes so that they could leave very, very quickly. And so she wanted it named Boxes because that's how she lived. It must have been very, very difficult for her, and she, and she did leave him. How, on how many occasions did she leave Howard Hughes? Oh, boy, there was times that he would just disappear, uh, and she didn't know where he went, and then he'd show up later on. But she would leave him. Uh, she left him at least three times for extended period of time, one nine months, one six months, one four months. And those were the times we found, as we put this together, is when, is when Howard would have his meetings, or he'd go out and fly airplanes in England would be the times when they were separated. And so as we put this all together, uh, we found out, well, we actually found out that, uh, that um, uh, Eva left him, this was June of 72, and she moved to Arizona. And he shows up now in Arizona, and she intended to leave him for good because she just couldn't put up with him. She intended to leave him for good. Now, middle of July, Nick shows up in Arizona, and she says, well, what have you been doing? And he said, well, I had some business to attend to. <laughs> and as we put this together, I said, Eva, do you know what happened in June of 72? No, she didn't. I said, Watergate. And Hunt and Liddy, who were arrested for Watergate, were on the payroll of a guy named Robert Bennett, who worked for Howard Hughes. Ah. The office they went into met a gentleman named Larry O'Brien. Mm-hmm. He was also on the Howard Hughes payroll. So we have people on the Howard Hughes payroll going into an office on the Howard Hughes payroll. And you remember that 18-minute lapse in Richard Nixon's tape? Yes. According to H.R. Halterman, that was the Howard Hughes connection to Watergate. And that's why it could never, ever be, be released. It could never, ever be let out. Fascinating. Because we found out that Howard actually owned Nixon. He owned him flat out and wanted to do him in because Nixon, he wanted Nixon to stop nuclear testing in Nevada. And Nixon really didn't do that. Aha! Here's another chapter in history. Now, I have to ask you, um, why you? Why did she choose? Why did Eva McClelland, the widow of Howard Hughes, choose you and Douglas Wellman to tell her story? Why didn't she take this to the, the New York Times or, I don't know, Harper? 
I, you know, um, I guess uh, she trusted me. Uh, she liked my military background. I'm a retired major general. She liked my military background. But I think I think the big thing was um, I, I talked to her on the phone several times in 1999 and 2000, and she called me up one day and said, Mark, I need some help. And I said, okay, Eva, what is that? And she said, well, Nick came back, and they were living in these trailers that you had to go up about three or four steps to get up into the trailer. And she said, Nick's health is failing, his mobility's failing, he can hardly get up the stairs anymore. And I'm trying to get the VA, he was getting medical uh, help from the VA in Montgomery, Alabama. He was trying to get the VA to build a ramp, and, and they were, it wasn't going quick. And so I called up the head of the VA in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, made contact and requested this ramp to be built. And it got built. Uh-huh. Now, whether, whether I, my input did anything, I don't know. But it got built. In fact, it's documented in his medical records from the, uh, from the uh, VA, which we have. Uh, so it's documented in there. So I think Eva felt very comfortable with me at that point in time because I think she thought he helped me get this thing built, and I was having problems getting it built. But he's Howard Hughes. He could just hire anybody he wants and, and have it built immediately, couldn't he? Uh, that, that, see, this, this rolls into uh, his money. You know, what happened to all of that money that he had? Because they weren't living in a, a high state there. What we found out was that, was that Howard really wasn't a material man. Uh, he was the richest man in America, but he really wasn't a material man. He spent money on power. He bought power, and that's what he wanted. They had access to money. So if he wanted to buy something, he could just go buy it. So they had access to it, but uh, they were living basically on she had a she had a social security check coming in and she had a retirement from the civil service coming in. Neither were very large, I suspect. And he he had a disability check coming in from the Air Force that Werner nicely, the real Werner nicely earned that was coming to him. And and then and then he had a a uh, checking account with the Chase Manhattan Bank. Um, that's what he bought. The diamond ring that he bought for her was a two carat diamond ring when they got engaged. And he wrote a check from the Chase Manhattan Bank for that ring. All right, we'll uh, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll find out about the uh, the Howard Hughes connection to the uh, the death of mobster Bugsy Siegel and uh, even President Kennedy. And also we'll dig further into uh, the clues that Howard Hughes faked his death, had a stand-in in uh, in 1976, and went on to live for another 25 years uh, with an alias and a new wife uh, living in a remote location in Alabama. It's all detailed quite nicely in the second edition of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes, Mark Music, and Doug Wellman. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Mark Music, Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes, the second edition. 
Um, all right. Before we get into Bugsy Siegel, uh, I just want to back up. I don't know if, if you did you want to divulge who the stand-in is. Um, one of the stand-ins that we know is a man named Brooks Randall. Uh, Brooks Randall was a uh, was a uh, uh, actor. Uh, I don't know how good of an actor, uh, but he was an actor, and he looked like Howard. He resembled Howard Hughes in height and look and and uh, so forth. And we know uh, that has come to us uh, through a lady who knew Nick, and Nick told her that Brooks Randall was one of the um, people who they used as a stand-in for him. And so we're pretty certain on uh, that. We've tried to do some tracking on Brooks Randall, and they've had a, had a hard time uh, finding additional information on him. But we do know that, uh, according to this lady, who we'll talk a little bit more about later, she um, uh, gave us that name. And as you look at his picture, Brooks Randall's picture, uh, very very close to Howard. And is he the one that actually died in 1976? Uh, we don't think that, no. We don't think he's actually one that died. Uh, the, he, he also told this lady that one of the stand-ins uh, was actually shot, uh, being a stand-in for Howard. And that became uh, the, you know, the man that died. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, there's so many things that were thrown into this that that sometimes it reaches the point of you don't know what he made up and you don't know what the truth is. Now, the, the gentleman that died, um, pretending to be Howard Hughes, I mean, he was in horrible shape. I mean, was he being mistreated? No, actually, he was a, he was a drug addict, um, and what we've learned on him. Uh, he was actually treated uh, probably fairly well. He, we think he was about 20 years older than Howard, and uh, he was kept... Uh, you know, with food and with drugs uh, for, his, for his normal life, for his natural life, until he finally passed away in, uh, in 1976. Um, but he, in 1973, he was in a hotel in London. Uh, this was that tall, emaciated man, and he fell. And, um, th- and he, he fell, broke a hip, and the doctor came in and basically said, oh, my God, this looks like a you know, per- Japanese prisoner of war. 90 pounds, uh, couldn't talk, uh, uh, um, was just uh, declared mentally incompetent at that point in time. Sad, sad physical shape. And, and the interesting thing is, uh, about six weeks prior to that, Howard Hughes, the real Howard Hughes, had flown a plane in England three times in June of 70, June and July of 73. He'd flown a plane in England three times, and the, the, the pilot with him said, you know, this is a commanding man. He's a friendly man. And I, I don't mean flew in a plane. I mean he did touch-and-goes. He did landings and things like that in, in these planes. And so uh, that a- adds more to the mystery of, my goodness, what is really going on here? This can't possibly be the same man that we're talking about. Right. How many, uh, how many people knew about the, the stand-in and that Howard Hughes was living um, with an alias, uh, and this is prior to necessary, you know, maybe him meeting Eva. But did his, did his, did all of his staff know that the person that they were supposedly attending to wasn't Howard Hughes? No, no, no. I don't think so. When we put the first book out, we 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 deduced there was two doctors that knew about it, and there was uh, five or six aides, and there was the um, the supervisor of the aides. So we 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 figured there was you know eight or nine people. Uh, who knew about it at that point in time. And that's when we put the first book out. What we found out is that there are actually people visiting him 
uh, on, he called it the ranch there in Alabama. Uh, he called the area the wooded property the ranch. And there were people who actually would come visit him who were Howard Hughes's people. So there's several more people uh, that we uh, have deduced who also knew that he was alive because they were actually um, coming to uh, do business with him in the, in the 80s and the 90s. Now, um, why would he complicate his, his life by faking his death? Because now, with an alias, how does he access his money? How does he control his company? If he's no longer, if Howard Hughes is no longer alive legally, how does Howard Hughes, now Nick Nickley, control the empire? Well, we think we think he gave up control of the empire when 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 he when he died when the stand-in died, uh, the empire and all of his businesses went elsewhere, that went elsewhere. But he still had uh, some money. Um, he, there was a there was a, a discussion over a will in 1977. 70, when it went on for years. There's discussion over a will of did he have a will? Did he not have a will? And at that point in time, there were 30 people that came forward and says. I've got the will of Howard Hughes. And, of course, the courts ruled none of them. Uh, none of them are legit. And so uh, the money went to cousins is where his money went to. What we think, what we believe, is that he had a will called, it was called the Mormon will. And what we think is that that is what he really wanted because that gave a, a large amount of money to the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And you remember one of those doctors that we talked about who knew he was still, knew he was alive? Right. Uh, he became a fairly high position in the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Ah, okay. Well, uh, we will get to the Bugsy Siegel story and JFK uh, in the next segment. Mark Music stays with us as we discuss the second edition of his book, co-authored by Douglas Wellman, Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes, back in a moment. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1 866 740 4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Mark Music, co-author along with Douglas Wellsman, or Wellman rather, of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes, and uh, let's uh, let's talk about uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel, a mob- mobster who spent a lot of time in Las Vegas when Vegas was really run uh, by the mob. Uh, what's the story there? Was Howard Hughes involved in Bugsy Siegel's uh, death? Well, he was not directly involved, no. But there's an indirect uh, relationship here. And when we when we uh, first put the book out, we thought there were no biological children. Uh, that's what history says. Howard Hughes had no biological children. Well, almost immediately, we had people started coming to us and said, well, I'm the biological child of Howard. One of these people was a man named John McDonald, and uh, he was born in 1942, and he was a very, um, uh, you know, uh, quiet man. And, and um, he was very reluctant to tell us things, 
and then and then uh, finally there was a book that came out a gentleman named Warren Hull called A Family Secrets I think it's called and it talks about John McDonald's family and what we have um, the, the the bottom line story of this is that Howard was the father the biological father of John McDonald now the John McDonald's father that he was living with uh, was a man named uh, Robert uh, Robert McDonald, Bob McDonald, and uh, he was associated with the mafia. And he, uh, through make a long story short, um, his dad uh, Robert McDonald owed some money to the mafia, and they came to him and said, "Okay, here's the deal: uh, we'll kill you. Uh, you can pay back." The twenty-five, the, the the money we owe you, which I think was twenty-five thousand dollars, you could pay that back, or we got a job for you. And the job was to go kill Bugsy Siegel. And that's what he did. He went and he uh, killed uh, Bugsy Siegel. And this is all in a book, uh, Family Secrets, written by Warren Hull. And so. Um, so this was the the adopted father or the stepdad of of Howard Hughes' biological son, John McDonald. Yeah, this would be the father, the uh, the man, his the, the biological son that that Howard uh, he was the family he was living with. Right. Okay. The family he was living with, and uh, it, it's all uh, documented in the in the book there in one chapter. If you look at John, we have pictures in there of John, and John McDonald uh, physically looks like Howard Hughes. We've got the pictures side by side, and it's kind of like, oh, my goodness. Right. You can hardly tell them apart. Have you had any, uh, speaking of which, have you had any photographic analysis done on uh, the, the photos of Nick Nickley uh, and Howard Hughes? We've had a, uh, um, the, 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 the original photos that we have of Nick in the first book is a man that's a long ways away. He never wanted his picture taken. Never want his picture taken. They're a long ways away. You cannot see facial characteristics and things like that until you blow them up. The picture that we did have in uh, from 1990, which is a man standing in a in a uh, wooded area with a with a uh, 1950 oil riggers hat on and a beard. And um, uh, you look at that picture and and you can't see a whole lot, but you see the eyes. The eyes is what does it. So you take those that picture of, of, of Nick there, and Howard had his last picture taken in about 1954. Was his last picture? It's a serious picture taken, and you look at the eyes in that picture, and they are the same. In fact, I took that picture, um, the one of, of Nick in 1990. I took that to a gentleman who knew um, Howard, and he actually traveled with Howard in the 80s. He said Howard didn't die. And, and I said, is this picture Howard Hughes? And he looked at it with a magnifying glass, and he said, uh, I'm 100% this picture's Howard Hughes. And I said, how? how? How can you do that? And he said, because Howard had surgery. Remember that surgery in yes. 1966? Howard had surgery to his eyes, and his right eye was slightly right. And he said, this man's right eye is slightly right. So Howard Hughes... Uh before he supposedly died in 1976, was never photographed again in public after 1954? Uh, correct. That is correct. 
There's one photograph we've seen, which was about 1958, which was just a snapshot type thing of him uh, standing by an airplane, I think it was. But there's no official photograph taken of him after 1954. Uh, he really did not want a picture taken, and, and that picture thing went back even to the 30s. He didn't want his pictures taken at all. Uh, and and um, But uh, that there was there was taken... A handsome man. He was a very, very handsome man. Yes, he was. Dashing, I think, would be the term we used to use. Dashing. Yes. Uh, Now, uh, I want to get to the JFK thing, but uh, something that leaps immediately to mind in terms of substantiating the story, and that is uh, there must be DNA evidence all over uh, the trailer where they lived in in Alabama. Uh, Was there ever any effort to find hair samples or something uh, that would... Um, provide DNA evidence to com- you know to compare with the real Howard Hughes. Boy, I wish we worked DNA for about six years on this. Uh, we had five items from the ranch that we thought would yield DNA, and none of them yielded DNA. Uh, not one of them. And um, uh, and I worked with a DNA expert for about six years on this thing, and we had you know hair, but the hair didn't have a, uh, a root to it, didn't have a follicle to it. Now, the interesting thing about it is when I went back to the ranch, after I put the, took the original, uh, you know, those original five, six items, after I went back to the ranch, the ranch had been cleaned. All the things that were, that were there that I thought would yield DNA were gone. Hmm. And they even removed the sinks. Interesting. They even removed the sinks. And, and so everything, and, and the gentleman that I worked with said, this man knew how to hide and, and you know, he wanted to hide, and he knew how to do it. They said he had help in, in hiding. How about handwriting analysis? There must have been samples of handwriting. Did he write notes to Eva? He did. Uh, we've got that. We've got some notes that he wrote to Eva. They do not match. They do not match Howard Hughes' handwriting. And I believe uh, Howard Hughes never wrote. What I think he did, I think someone wrote everything that he, uh, that he needed write, written. And the reason why I say that is because his uh, his uh, spelling was atrocious. Uh, Eva would say his he only had about eighth grade education, and she said his spelling was absolutely atrocious, and that's why we believe that uh, much of the writing that Howard Hughes has is uh, is um, he dictated uh, it, it doesn't match right he just dictated it to somebody yeah so he dictated it, it doesn't match in in lieu of of DNA evidence. In lieu of you know handwriting samples, uh, I mean, isn't this just Eva McClellan's story? I mean, what what other tangible evidence? I mean, you have you know other people who worked with him and corroborate it, but is there any other physical evidence that this that Nick Nickley was in fact Howard Hughes? We've got uh, we've got the, those pictures, and we, there are facial characteristics on the pictures after you blow them up that it's him, uh, his height. Uh, his height was six foot four. Uh, he had a very rounded head. Uh, Nick had a very, very rounded head. Uh, Nick's feet were burned and his hands were burned. Uh, people said his feet were burned much worse than his hands were burned. He told uh, a lady that he was involved with an aircraft accident, mm. and uh, she really didn't believe him. He told a lady, I'm Howard Hughes. Uh, she really didn't know what to believe at that point. And so there's, there was a lady that came forward to us who knew them in 81 through 84. And she was a student at Troy University. And she got to know them very, very well. 
and uh, and he told her, I'm Howard Hughes. He told her who he worked with. Uh, he told her names. Um, he told her all kind of things about Watergate. Uh, he told her about the Kennedy assassination. Um, he told her about um, uh, travels that he did. People came to visit him where Howard Hughes' people. She would pick up uh, packages from the post office, and they were from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Uh, she would deliver postcards that he wanted to go out, and they were to Howard Hughes' people. So, uh, let's just talk. Uh, uh, spend a few moments talking about uh, the possible connection between Howard Hughes and the assassination of JFK. Okay. All right. What we've got there is this lady who was a student in 1981 through 84. Uh, Howard uh, basically told her that uh, the JFK assassination, this is in the second book, was done by uh, the mafia. Uh, Frankie and Johnny, who he said it was, Frankie and Johnny. Uh, he let know Frank, Johnny is, is a gentleman named Johnny Roselli. Right, from the Sam Giancani gang in Chicago. Correct. And, and Frank, actually, Nic- Frank Nicoletti, isn't it? I don't know who Frank is. I think that's Frank Nicoletti. See, we don't. We never. We could never figure that out. Who Frank is, but Johnny, because Johnny, remember uh, uh, John McDonald's dad, uh, yes. Robert, uh, at their house. And this would be in the forties. Uh, Howard Hughes would come and, and eat meals with them, and also Johnny Roselli, because his dad was associated with the mafia. Johnny Roselli would come and and socialize with them and have meals with them too. So now we got in the forties. We've got. Nick, whose son is living, biological son is living in this house, uh, he's coming and socializing with them, and, uh, and also the mafia is socializing with them. So we got a, a tremendous linkage to, between Howard and the mafia a trace that goes back to the 40s. Aha. Okay. That, I, I was mistaken. It wasn't Frank Nicoletti. It was, that was Charles or Chucky uh, Nicoletti. So I'm not sure who Frankie was, but uh, um, fascinating, fascinating chapter. Now, is it has any consideration been given to exhuming Nick Nickley's body? Is that is that possible? And and then comparing again the DNA. Okay, Nick Nickley, um, Howard uh, Howard Hughes uh, was cremated. Ah, and so uh, of course you, I wish I wish I wish we could get something out of that, but we're not getting any DNA out of that. And so. Um, uh, he was cremated at that point, and that's all part of the story is Eva asked me to go help spread the ashes. And so uh, I went and helped her spread the ashes at the Navarro Beach in Florida where they lived uh, for about six months uh, on the beach there, and they both enjoyed that very much. The aides were right behind them uh, in this in this uh, beach house that they're living in. And so uh, he's there. Now, the stand-in, uh, supposedly, you know, and I don't know if the stand-in's still there or not, uh, would would be buried in Houston, uh, at the cemetery there in Houston, in between the parents. Um, you know, someone wants to exhume that. That's fine. I'm not going to press that. Um, the uh, I, I will I will go out on a limb and say that stand-ins DNA will never ever ever <laughs> ever match the two parents in that gravesite. It will never match. If the stand-ins even if someone even came to me and said, well, I, I doubt if the stand-ins even there anymore. They'd probably be taking him out. And put him someplace else. Howard Hughes, he was truly the disappearing man, wasn't he? He would uh, he would disappear, and he did it even from the 30s. Uh, there's people who interacted with him in the 30s and 40s, 
and he would just uh, disappear. And then Eva would have, uh, uh, you know, he'd disappear for, when they first met in 1969, uh, he disappeared then for December 69 and January 70. He just disappeared. And he came back in February of 70. And Eva did not know him very well then. But she said, well, well, where have you been? And he said, well, I, I had some business to attend to in the States. <laughs> well, he, and he disappeared for good in 1976 and for right. the next 25 years. And uh, he didn't make it easy for you to piece this together either. Uh, Mark Music, a fascinating chapter in, uh, in history. And I thank you for bringing this to the fore, both uh, you and Douglas Wellman. Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. Thank you so much, Mark. Richard, thank you. This has been fun. My pleasure. All right, my website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this program. And please say hello on Twitter, Richard, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S, Y, because I love you, R, E, double T. And as always, follow the truth. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your parents' basement, loft, RV, camper, taxi, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. 50,000 watts of peace and love and one of the largest broadcast footprints in North America. Hi to all of you hearing this program on one of our affiliates, the podcast listeners, of course, uh, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, uh, iTunes, TalkZone.com. Those of you who catch the live stream during our HOAs, our Hangouts on Air, incidentally, the HOA resumes next week. Uh, those of you who take the program with you on your mobile device through the Zoomer Radio and the Conspiracy Show apps, 
which are both free downloads. So however, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Recently, we lost a late-night radio pioneer here in southern Ontario, Errol Bruce Knapp, uh, passed at the age of 74 after a brief illness. Many of you will be familiar uh, with his work in the UFO ET arena, particularly as host of the long-running legendary radio program Strange Days Indeed. And, of course, he was also the founder and moderator of the UFO Updates Forum. Uh, So tonight... We pay tribute to Errol Bruce Knapp. Uh, Victor Vigiani is standing by here in studio, a one-time co-host of Strange Days Indeed and good friend of Errol's. We'll also have some special guests on the phone. Uh, In the meantime, let me remind you of a a special live event coming your way Saturday, October the 15th at the JJR McLeod Auditorium here in Toronto. Take a walk on the dark side, uh, featuring our Gary Patterson. Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. This is going to be a good one. Uh, with special guests joining us by Skype, including Peggy Sue Guerin, of course, who was immortalized by Buddy Holly in two songs. Leo Lyons of uh, 10 Years After. Uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side. Saturday, October the 15th, JJR McLeod Auditorium, 4 to 8 p.m. Uh, tickets available online at strangeplanet.ca. Just go to the live events page and you can order and print your tickets right there. You can also buy tickets in store, over the phone, or online through my good friends uh, Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture. Just visit conspiracyculture.com. Victor Vigiani is the executive director of Zeland Communications and a frequent guest on this program. He was also a co-host on the legendary Strange Days Indeed. Victor Vigiani, welcome to the program. Kind of a somber occasion. Yeah, it is. It's uh, something that we have to do, though, but uh, uh, it's great to be back, and it's, it's an honor and a privilege to do what we're going to do tonight, and uh, I know you'll explain it fully in a, in a moment. Well, for those not familiar with Errol Bruce Knapp, a mainstay not only in the UFO and sort of uh, world of the strange mm-hmm. arena, but really was a, a mainstay on on Toronto airwaves, radio, television, late mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're here to talk about his work on Strange Days Indeed, and, and you certainly were were uh, a, piv- a pivotal member of Strange Days Indeed. You you uh, co-hosted for three, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, just describe the program, what it was about, and, and why it was so special. Well, essentially, the, the program was, was Errol's idea, and he wanted to bring forward... Um, uh, a, a better way of understanding what this UFO phenomenon was all about. Uh, having been a member of MUFON Ontario uh, up here in Canada, in Toronto, uh, he spearheaded uh, a lot of meetings that involved uh, a large, a very large group of MUFON uh, members. And from that um, grew UFO updates. And that was sort of a, a large forum of discussion. And he moderated all the emails and exchanges. And then following that, um, he got the offer to do uh, Strange Days Indeed. And he jumped at the chance because he knew just about every single major player in the UFO community around the world. I'm talking, you know, everywhere, in every single continent. And he had a great understanding not only of, of, the, of the UFO phenomenon, but he had a great understanding for the different kinds of people and the, uh, I guess, the atmosphere and the context in which they were working. And uh, he, he, he brought it all together. He really made sense uh, for his audience. And we're told that at one time, uh, there, up to two million people were listening. 
Uh, right in the in the uh, what they call the Golden Horseshoe here in Southern cool. Ontario. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. a huge audience for yes. a late night weekend show. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, I was working at CFRB, well from the early nineties mm-hmm. up until the early two thousands. Right. And uh, I would see uh, Errol on occasion, and certainly at the uh, the, the um, Christmas party, occasionally we would break bread together. Mm-hmm. Um, was I'm trying to remember. You know, we we didn't have that many conversations, but. It seems to me he was an experiencer. I don't think he ever really came out and said it, uh, but I think that he really felt that he had had some kind of intrusive uh, experience of one kind or another because he was, um, in many ways, he, he had a depth of knowledge way beyond, uh, I think, the way we understand it right now, what the abduction phenomenon is all about, even the UFO issue. And I think it was that deep understanding that brought things to life for him. And uh, it, much in the same way that I, I feel uh, in, in terms of what I may have been through myself personally, and I think we've talked about it on yes. there before, uh, not really knowing exactly what happened, but something happened. Right, yeah, I seem to recall a conversation about missing time. Yeah. But yeah. you're right, he kind of talked around the edges of it. Precisely, yeah. So in all the years that you knew him, he never came out in even off the air and... and um, and said, listen, this is what happened to me. I mean, you never swapped stories? Not in that way, no, because uh, there really, as far as he was concerned, there really wasn't a story to tell. I mean, I, I do recall him talking about the missing time aspect to what, what he went through and, and all the whole context of it. But he never really came out and said that he had actually a face-to-face contact with, you know, a creature from an off-world civilization. So, uh, he, he, and he wasn't one really to, um, uh, to talk too much about that kind of thing. Uh, he, he didn't really personalize it to that point. He, he was more interested in, in bringing other people out. And, and, and his technique that he used to do that was, uh, was extremely professional. I thought it was profoundly a great learning experience for me. Victor Vigiani is uh, with us, executive director of Zeland Communications, a regular here on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, we are marking the passing of a, uh, a late-night radio uh, pioneer here in, in southern Ontario, uh, Errol Bruce Knapp, the host of Strange Days Indeed, primarily about UFOs, but occasionally you would branch off into other areas. To tell us a little bit more about what else you talked about. Oh, definitely. Um, he had a lot of people on um, in terms of, uh, we talked about time travel, um, and the, the, you know, this evening we're going to be talking about some paranormal aspects to, uh, uh, to channeling. A lot of people on uh, that talked about the whole idea of channeling. A remote viewing, a number of people who um, had experienced uh, th- this whole I- idea of, of remote viewing, uh, ghosts. Uh, he, he, really, he, hit the, he really hit the main issues in a very hard way. Uh, but, of course, his main topic was the whole identified uh, aerial phenomenon, uh, phenomenon thing. And um, so he was sort of eclectic in, in, his, in his understanding of all of those issues. He really had a great, uh, really had a great foundation in all of it. So. And uh, the uh, his UFO updates was one of the first, uh, I guess they used to call them bulletin boards um, or discussion groups mm-hmm. on this topic anywhere. So, you know, how did that, what was the genesis of that? Because it became hugely yeah. popular. Yeah. I mean, it was the go-to... Uh, as you uh, you uh, as you would say on any given night, and 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 Errol would be the moderator. You would have all the heavyweights, Stanton mm-hmm. Friedman or Richard C. Hoagland, the who's who, would would Just, come to this forum to talk about UFOs. That's right. They would. They, how it came about? Uh, perhaps we could uh, talk more about that with uh, with one of our guests, um, 
uh, either either Mike Woods would would know a bit more, or right. even even John John Velez. John Velez. They'll yeah. be coming up later. Yeah. Later, yeah. Um, it, the, the, the genesis was the number of emails that Errol used to get for the show and for just the interchange that he knew, the people that he knew. And I think one of his ideas, well, let's get these people together to talk, to, to, to you know, almost to, to the point of butting heads ideologically. He did that uh, on purpose. He would let people just sort of fight it out on, on the format uh, that, he, that he had on UFO updates. And there were some pretty pointed kind of exchanges. Uh, you had to have your stuff together in order to contribute to UFO updates. And if you put out something was, that was pointed or too controversial, you got cut off of the knees. Really? Mm-hmm. Too yeah. pointed or controversial? Yeah, because it's interesting. We, we look at, dare I call it, the evolution mm-hmm. um, of, of the UFO ET uh, arena and the discussions that are now had. Mm-hmm. I'm, a lot of what we talk about on this program, you and I, for example, mm-hmm. Errol Bruce Knapp probably wouldn't have had a lot of time for, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I recall... Um, and I stand to be corrected on this, but I recall the whole idea of the abduction phenomenon to begin with. Um, now, he had his own perception and, and perspective on it, but the, the, the general membership within the UFO dates, uh, updates community had no time for this UFO update and, until Bud Hopkins came along. Right. Because, because I mean, this is sort of the, this was, was or, and perhaps still is the MUFON mindset, right? Of course, yeah. It's like the Autobahn Society... For you for flying unidentified f- f- area flying phenomena. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's tell me what you saw. Where did you see it? What time was it? What direction was it headed? You know, tell me about the lights. Yeah. And that's about as far as it went. That's right. It was very um, austere, and very, um, you know, nuts and bolts. There were saucer craft, and uh, they did this. The weather conditions were that. And really, I don't want to hear any more about that. I mean, we, there was no talk about propulsion systems, no talk about... Free energy. Free energy, interdimensional travel. Could it be time travel? It was just the real kind of mechanical aspects. And to a certain degree, uh, the, MUFON, the MUFON organization commandeered the airwaves uh, in terms of UFO updates on the, on the UFO uh, phenomenon because there's a very strong, powerful uh, Toronto faction uh, in, uh, in MUFON. And Errol was part of it. Uh, but he understood that there was more to it than just, you know, funny lights in the sky or funny craft in the sky. And he, and he pushed the envelope and allowed people to see that there were other aspects to it. But it was controlled and slow. I mean... Oh, very much so. Very much so, yeah. I, I, yes, I, I'm guessing a lot of what's going on in the exopolitics oh. movement would not... Uh, don't even he mention have suffered that. Don't even mention the word exopolitics. I think the first time I mentioned the word exopolitics, I think Errol kicked me under the under the table. He was cantankerous. Yeah, he was. He could be. He could be very, very um, uh, demanding in, in in the way you presented yourself on the radio, and, and you couldn't just sort of spontaneously bring up something that was marginal in in their books. And uh, he had no time for some people, uh, literally. Uh, he said, "No, I'm not having that person on my program," <laughs> and. Uh, I think he got to see that uh, it, it, it was sort of a, a combination of things where he, re- he wanted to o- open the fold a little bit more, okay, in, in terms of bringing in more guests. So he did, he did open up to that, and I think he saw the writing on the wall that this was a movement, speaking particularly about exopolitics. But there were other things, too, that, um, that, that we needed to understand, and the work of Stephen Greer and, and Stephen Passett at the time, when, the, when those two worked together, um, they were a real powerful force, those two people, Stephen Bassett and, 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 um, and Stephen Greer. Before the Great Schism. Yes, before <laughs> that, yeah. 
And, and then later on, uh, we, you know, we had Stephen Greer on and Bassett, and later on, uh, eventually, um, uh, Stephen Greer fell out of favor uh, with many in MUFON and, and, and Errol, too. So, it, uh, yeah, there were some pretty, <laughs> you used the word cantankerous, yeah. Because after the show, after Strange Days Indeed would finish at around 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, we'd go over to the local tavern and, you know, walk out of the St. Clair and Avenue, uh, with St. Clair and, um, and Young Studios right, right. over to the local watering hole and um, just knock back a few beers and get not get out of there till 3 o'clock in the morning. I want to hear more about that. Yeah. All right, we will take a time out. <laughs> Victor Vigiani is here. We are sharing some memories as part of our tribute to the late Errol Bruce Knapp, who just passed recently, a fixture of late-night radio, particularly in the uh, the UFO realm, and uh, the program was called Strange Days Indeed. Back with more Stevens. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Good evening. My name is Errol Bruce Knapp. Welcome to a special uh, Canada Day weekend edition of Strange Days Indeed. Uh, we look at the phenomena that surround UFOs. On tonight's program, we will be bringing you Dr. John Mack, who's professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School at Cambridge Hospital. And we are back, Victor Vigiani in studio, executive director of Z-Land Communications, a regular here on uh, the program as we pay tribute to the late Errol Bruce Knapp, host of Strange Days Indeed. Errol, of course, a, um, a fixture on uh, Toronto Airwaves, radio, television, late nights, and um, we mentioned Strange Days Indeed, which uh, primarily uh, sort of evolved primarily into, uh, into uh, you know, a discussion of... of UFOs, but you would occasionally branch off. And Victor, mm-hmm. you were yeah. a, um, a a co-host for three, four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were mentioning, you know, his somewhat cantankerous uh, nature, or his his uh, he didn't suffer fools lightly, no. and he didn't have a lot of time for uh, exopolitics. Uh, when did that start to change? You mentioned Bud Hopkins. Was yeah. it a conversation with Bud? I think, I think it, it did begin to change once Bud brought in, uh, when, uh, and he, when he wrote his book, um, Copley Woods, I believe it was, about the, um, the young lady, uh, that he, that Bud, uh, talked about in terms of the abduction phenomenon. And w- when, I guess, all of us began to see that this UFO phenomenon was more than just funny lights in the sky and nuts and bolts craft that would be flitting here and flitting there that we talked about, you know, in, in, in the 40s and the 50s and all of the things that were very uh, structured, I guess, in terms of the analysis of what these things would be, you know, the Space Brothers and I, I Flew to Venus and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, had a, that had a big playtime uh, in the 50s and as it moved along, but we, we got to see eventually that it meant more. And I think the exopolitics movement uh, began to introduce uh, many different aspects to what this phenomenon was all about. 
just like the the whole idea right now that um, that people like uh, Grant Cameron are talking about the consciousness aspect of what these beings are bringing to us right. a very very powerful movement about uh, how we are being imbued with some sort of communication especially with respect to the uh, abductees or experiencers so it's, it's evolved that way and I think he eventually saw that that was the direction things were going and as a result of that, he, he widened his, uh, his, his array, his menu of, of people that he had on the program. Uh, we mentioned Bud Hopkins, and we came out of the, uh, the break mm-hmm. with a, a, a clip from Strange Days Indeed, and that was uh, Errol introducing uh, John Mack. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about his conversations, your conversations uh, with, with John Mack. How, how did that um, sort of move the needle in terms of the, the trajectory of the show? Well, I think he began to understand, especially through Bud's work, um, and I guess at the time, uh, understanding that once John Mack wrote his book, uh, Abductions, that uh, someone of this stature, uh, you know, a a professor, a head of Harvard Medical School, wrote something so uh, risky as uh, abductions, I think Errol began to see that this was uh, part and parcel of the whole phenomenon. And I guess John Mack's uncertainty or the way he described the phenomenon was something very attractive to, to Errol. And I think right. because of uh, John Mack's, Dr. Mack's credibility, I think he, uh, Errol embraced that. And right. He, yeah. He, he, he strikes me as someone who very conservative in terms of and protective of the, you know, the UFO uh, arena. And as you say, when someone highly credentialed was willing to go out on a limb, mm-hmm. now it's time. You know, it's not about some, you know, paragraph in the wireless flash about, <laughs> you know, somebody who claimed that they were, you know, taken up into the sky. Right. He, he was waiting. He was waiting for that right person to come out. And now it's time to jump in. I Very think, conservative approach. Yeah. How, you have to respect that. Of course. He opened so many doors to so many people and so many different issues. And I think that's the strong point of what, uh, what Errol did. And that would be, as far as I'm concerned, that would be the legacy of this man. He, he, made his, he's, he moved along the spectrum very, very carefully. And uh, in, in, that, in taking that kind of care, he really brought in people of, 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 quality, uh, of quality background. Like you said, he didn't, didn't suffer fools, <laughs> and it was something that he was very careful about. Well, let's bring in a, another uh, a colleague of Errol Bruce Knapson. This is uh, Mike Woods, who was a co-host uh, on Strange Days Indeed for uh, about a year and uh, also made a couple of appearances on other non-UFO shows on the same station, CFRB 1010. Uh, longtime journalist, 30 years, including uh, as a newsroom backup at Chum, Chum FM, lead reporter for CKWW in Windsor, associate editor, managing editor of Business and Finance magazine, uh, 22 years at City TV here in Toronto, 18 years as a news writer. This is a hard-boiled journalist and, uh, as I say, the uh, the one-time co-host, along with Errol Bruce Knapp at Strange Days Indeed. Mike Woods, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me on. All right. How does a, um, a hard-boiled journalist, such as yourself, uh, become co-host on a, a program dedicated primarily to UFOs? Well, uh, very simple. And, uh, not only hardcore journalists, former soldier, born skeptic, born, uh, you know, you got to prove it to me. And the thing was, was that was Errol's bottom line. Um, Errol, as you mentioned, did not f- suffer fools lightly. He didn't uh, suffer uh, outrageous claims. 
he was very much a an evidence fact person and so consequently and we worked off of each other quite well because i would bring i could be the skeptic i could play the bad cop he could play the good cop um, and Errol was very much uh, an evidence-based person uh, as far as UFO research was uh, concerned. And I, I truly feel that Strange Days Indeed and the Companion UFO Updates uh, webpage, this was peer review for the UFO researchers. Excellent same, description, yeah. You know, and it's the same principle as all scientific inquiry. But Strange Days Indeed and UFO Updates, that was peer review. The top researchers would post what they were working on, and all the rest of us would gather in a circle and try and kick holes in it. And consequently, it, it allowed for a free range of ideas. But Errol would shut you down when you became insulting or obnoxious or anything like that. It was, here's what this person is presenting. If you have a counter-argument, post it. Uh, and, you know, within the confines of civilized, intelligent discussion, that was allowed, and that was what made both the radio show and the website. It really um, is a counterpoint to today's social media, isn't it, Mike? Oh, yeah. Um, partly, I mean, it's great that we can have information through tweets immediately, but 140 characters allows zero depth. And the Strange Days Indeed, the show that you folks do, the conspiracy show, um, things like UFO updates, this allowed for more in-depth. And it also allowed, many a time, I, I got caught with it and other people got caught with it, many a time what that meant was that something you'd said a year ago could come back to haunt you. There was a certain amount of responsibility within every person contributing to stay focused because once you'd posted it, it was there forever. Did did Errol have a journalistic uh, background? Because, I mean, you certainly employed, you know, some of those journalistic or all of those journalistic uh, sort of principles that you brought to the program uh, as best you can in a field that is largely speculative. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this, the basic premise, the, the five W's of journalism, the who, what, when, where, why, are always a, a great starting point for any investigation. And Errol was of the type that some things claimed in the field really got under his skin. Um, Give me an example. Uh, the Carp Guardian case. Ah, yes. He thought that was three pounds of nonsense in a one-pound bag. Just, just for those not familiar with the Carp Guardian case, uh, just give uh, us the thumbnail. Well, uh, videotapes circulated amongst the community and then went wider, uh, showing a supposed craft on the ground near the community of Carp outside of Ottawa, mm -hmm. Ontario. Um, the video came with a package of information from, and I hope you can hear the quote marks, The Guardian. Yes. Um, and it was a lot of uh, real tripe, frankly, and, you know, deliberately obscure, oblique uh, references and all this. But the videotape made such a stir, it was on American television programs like uh, Unsolved Mysteries, and uh, UFOs, the greatest uh, evidence ever captured on videotape, it was featured in both of those. We kind of thought it was funny, especially the Unsolved Mysteries one. That got up his nose. So 
he said, let's look into this. It was one of the very few cases Errol personally investigated. He saw himself as a facilitator for UFO researchers, not as a UFO researcher. But we went into it. I had a friend of mine with uh, twin degrees, electronic engineering, or electrical engineering, and computer sciences, who had this wonderful home system, the most advanced uh, computer available at the time, and it was all wired into VCRs uh, for tape, videotape analysis. We were able to take that tape and prove that, in fact, it was a vehicle. It was a Ford F-150 pickup truck. <laughs> it had a strobe light on the roof, and it had lights underneath shining up. And our expert pointed out that uh, videotape has its specific color to temper, uh, temperature uh, scaling. And he was able to show conclusively that the heat of the light, the most uh, warm part was at the bottom radiating up, not radiating from the, the craft down. Other obscuring things, there were a number of road flares, and I suspect a smoke bomb or two, to further obscure it. Uh, we were able to zoom in, and uh, what ended the case, as far as I was concerned, is we were able to zoom in on the windshield and more specifically see a windshield wiper uh, on the, the windshield. And as far as I'm personally concerned, I do not believe interstellar craft require windshield wipers. And so that would pretty <laughs> much put the car guardian case into bed. Excellent. Uh, Mike Woods, a former co-host on Strange Days Indeed, as we pay tribute to uh, the late Errol Bruce Knapp, Victor Vigiani in studio, uh, Executive Director, Zeland Communications. Um, other uh, memorable, we just got about two minutes here, Mike, but another memorable exchange on air uh, during your tenure there? You well, want, you yeah. want to share? Yes, but it's not in regards to Strange Days Indeed. Errol had a second show, very short-lived, called Mind Shift, and it was everything except UFOs. Mm. We got an expert on to talk about who uh, an author had written a stunning book on the state as of that day, about five years ago, but the state at that time of nano-research, and particularly medical application of nano-research. He discussed um, a trial being done at a university down in the States where they would use nanoparticles that would distribute gold over a tumor. And then um, you expose that to UV light. And tumors are extraordinarily sensitive to temperature differentials. And the gold plating delivered through a nano delivery system, which was being done, uh, the gold plating on it with the UV light would be enough to kill the tumor. Now, one of the most lethal cancers on Earth, and they were focusing on this, is liver cancer. Mm -hmm, There's bugger all you can do about it. And uh, we had a caller phone us, and she was stage four liver terminal cancer, liver, uh, liver cancer. Uh, the author, while we were on the air, was able to get a hold of the lead researcher um, at the university in the States. And uh, before we were off air, we had made arrangements for this woman to take part in this trial and potentially save her life. We never followed up on it. Wow. I have, I have no idea whether it worked or not for this woman. But I can think of very few things in a 30-plus year career in broadcasting that I'm prouder of than the moment when Arrow 
started pushing this researcher during the commercial breaks, see if he can get this woman involved. Amazing. And he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Mike, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us tonight and helping us uh, pay tribute to uh, Errol. Uh, you're more than welcome. I consider it an honor. I think of Errol as one of the most critical people in UFO research during a very, very difficult time with the explosion of videotapes, social media, and whatnot. And it was Errol's firm hand that I believe kept the field focused on what is provable as opposed to what is pure blue sky fantasy. Well, we could use them right now, probably on this show from time to time. Thank you again, Mike. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Thank you. All right. Back, in more, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416 416- 360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740 Not often do you get someone with the background that Leslie Kane has. Take a look at what we talk about here on this program every week. Leslie, what does a journalist, broadcaster with your background go through to come into this field? Well, the subject of UFOs has been a personal interest of mine for a long time, actually even before I started doing serious journalism. But I never thought that I could ever do anything with it professionally. It never would have occurred to me until this report came out of France, which I wrote my first story about on the subject in the Boston Globe, the Comita Report. Welcome back to the program. That was uh, Errol Bruce Knapp, uh, the late Errol Bruce Knapp. Uh, we are uh, paying tribute to the uh, the host of Strange Days Indeed, a, uh, a radio program, a regular fixture here on uh, Toronto Late Night Airwaves um, about the UFO uh, phenomenon. And Victor Vigiani stays with us in studio, executive director of Zeland Communications. Uh, that clip, uh, he was uh, speaking with uh, Leslie Kane, mm-hmm. um, um, noted journalist, author of UFOs, uh, um, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. That's correct. Yeah. Um, Later on, she didn't. She hadn't. She hadn't written that book when he when no, he spoke. That's right. She had just finished, uh, as you may have heard in the clip, uh, investigating and finding out more about the the Cometa report. That was something that uh, was a groundbreaking event for her and really launched her career in terms of. Um, in terms of uh, investigation. You see, I can see someone like Leslie and, and Errol h- hitting it off because they both sort of employ that, that same sort of no-nonsense, give mm. me the facts, just the facts approach. Yeah. Errol had an extremely large amount of respect for Leslie Kane's work. Um, he really respected the, the diligence of her work, the factual nature of it, the cut-and-dry nature of it, and in his, in his own inimitable style, he really respected uh, journalists. And she was a journalist. She, at the time, she wasn't a you know, typical researcher. She came from the Boston Globe at the time. And uh, he really respected why she launched her career due to the, the Cometa Report, the French investigation, uh, military personnel investigating the whole UFO phenomenon in France. All right. We have a, um, an- another uh, colleague of the late Earl Bruce Knapps uh, joining us now, Gordon Finn. 
uh, was a, um, a guest on, on the program and a uh, long-time experiencer, researcher in the fields of out-of-body travel, consciousness projection, lucid dreaming, past and between-life regression. Uh, he's a, um, a relentless blogger, maker of YouTube videos, uh, has been a, a guest on this program and on uh, the television program, and uh, is, uh, let's see, he's got about 15 books, e-books to his credit, including his latest, which is You Are History, The Soul, The Higher Self, and Our Share of Divinity. Gordon Finn, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good tonight, thank you, uh, Richard. Very well. How did you uh, uh, get involved with Strange Days Indeed? As I recall... Victor suggested me to Earl when he he got the uh, second show started by the uh, station that he was on, and he needed all kinds of guests to talk about paranormal and psychic. So this would this would have been mind shift. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this was an opportunity for for Errol to, uh, to sort of spread his wings and and get into other things besides the UFOs. Uh huh. Yes. And um, he uh, had some. Ex- not many people know this, Richard, but he had quite a bit of psychic experience himself in his early life. He was a medical intuitive at one point. Hmm. And I, I don't know, he told me all about it after I knew him, not on air, but, um, you know, so uh, he had, he didn't pursue it. He, he had pursued it earlier in his life and told me had, with some success he was able to intuit what was wrong with people. At a certain point, but he didn't pursue it in in a professional sense. Uh, did he approach non UFO topics with the same sort of skepticism? Just give me the facts, uh, as he did, you know, on, on Strange Days. Indeed, my impression was, and I did listen to a few Strange Days Indeed shows before I was on the Mind Shift show, that he was considerably less serious with the psychic and paranormal. Um, I think he saw the UFO alien situation as something of his life's work, including all the archives that he kept, these voluminous archives. And um, he took that very seriously, and I think he took the uh, Mind Shift show as an opportunity to, well, as you say, spread his wings, and all, but also have a little fun. Right. He was very amusing on the show. I was endlessly endlessly amused by the way he would joke around as we were dialoguing with each other and answering calls from uh, guests. I think one of the strong points uh, of his personality, as you would uh, really admit, uh, Gordon, that he had, he had an incredible sense of humor, uh, like a, Mo- a Monty Python type of sense of humor. Would you not agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Richard, on one show, because... We, both Errol and I had a fondness for rock music of the 60s. As you know, he, he, was, he was a DJ on pirate radio. Yes, I remember him telling me that. And when he left the army in 66, 67, he used his money to buy a rock club in Portsmouth in the south of England. Oh, that's great. And he had all kinds of 60s bands playing there, including, you're going to love this, the first version of Pink Floyd. Oh, my. And, uh, oh my! Saucer full of secrets. Maybe that's what. Maybe that's what uh, launched his fascination with UFOs. Oh a, a couple of you know hoisting the cups with Sid Barrett, perhaps. Well, that's the amazing thing. I mean, Sid Barrett was only in the band for about a year and a half, and Earl had them at his club. <laughs> and um, he was. I'll tell you, at the end of one show, he was feeling pretty giddy, 
as we, as we moved into a commercial. He, it was fading out, and he started singing the song Bike from the first Pink Floyd album. Listen, I gotta, I gotta stop you there, Gordon. We're gonna take a time out. We'll come back. Hang yeah. in there. We'll come back to you, Gordon Finn, who was a, uh, a frequent guest on uh, Errol Bruce Knapp's other program, Mind Shift. Uh, as, we, as we continue to pay tribute to the late broadcaster Errol Bruce Knapp, Victor Vigiani stays with us in studio from Zeland Communications. Back with more in a moment. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. I'm Ben Mercer, and on the next Kobo and Conversation, we chat with Marnie Jackson about her celebrity-obsessed new novel, Don't I Know You. We have a hot new pick from the staff at Kobo, plus we speak with the mother and daughter avid readers, Heather and Gail Kilner. Join me for Kobo in Conversation. Saturday at 1 on Zoomer Radio, brought to you by Kobo. With millions of ebooks at your fingertips, it's never been easier to get lost in a story. Sign up and get a $5 credit. Visit Kobo.com today. Zoomer Radio cares and shares. Supporting Eva's initiatives for homeless youth. Sponsoring, with TD, Eva's Taste Matters 2016. Thursday night, the Liberty Grand will be a foodie paradise. Join celebrity chef David Rocco for the most delectable edibles you can imagine. You'll be helping to feed, educate, and shelter children who need you. Get your tickets at tastematters.ca. And thank you from the kids and all of us at Zoomer Radio. Sweet. So awesome. Read reviews of Epson's cartridge-free EcoTank printer. You'll see phrases like flawless and the new standard. Print up to 8,000 pages without changing the cartridge. See the totally cartridge-free EcoTank at Staples or Best Buy. Epson.ca slash EcoTank. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Good evening. My name is Errol Bruce Knapp. Our featured guest tonight, John E. Mack. Good evening, Dr. Mack, and welcome to Strange Days Indeed. Well, you, you trace pretty well in your introduction there the, the evolution of my involvement, and uh, one thing seemed to lead to another. Dr. Mack, thank you very much for joining us tonight. I hope we didn't cut your dinner too short for you. No, you didn't cut the dinner too short. You, you extended the evening. Oh, <laughs> oh, good. We look forward to having you come back. Uh, one day at uh, some point in the future. Okay, thanks for having me on. Thank you, okay. Dr. Mack. Dr. John Mack. My name is Errol Bruce Knapp. Good night. My name is Errol Bruce Knapp. Good night. Welcome back to the program, and we are paying tribute to the late Errol Bruce Knapp, who just passed uh, recently. A uh, long-time broadcaster fixture on Toronto, late-night airwaves, strange days indeed, and of course, mind shift. And we just came back with that clip. Uh, that was um, uh, Errol interviewing the late John Mack, now uh, both gone. Mm -hmm. um, did, were you part of that show? Uh, yes, I was, yeah. You remember that conversation? Oh, very clearly, very clearly. It, it was um, something that's emblazoned in my mind. I will never forget being on air with that man and just to to experience his um, the, the pace of his uh, of his language and the the intuitive nature of the man but also this this psychiatric precision he had both things uh, completely under control he had so much evidence uh, and and he he presented it in a in a very kind of 
a question-oriented way in, you know, in terms of, I'm still not sure what's really going on, but something is going on. He repeated that a lot. There, we know that these people have been through something, and it, it's not categorized as uh, some sort of pathology. And he, it, the thoroughness of his, of his speech and everything really pointed to the fact that... Very he, cautious. Very cautious, but he, he knew he was on to something. Uh, Gordon Finn is uh, with us. Gordon was a frequent guest on Errol Bruce Knapp's other program, Mind Shift. And uh, we were just in the midst of uh, talking about uh, Errol, uh, who uh, was involved in pirate radio. And um, uh, later, he purchased a rock club down in Portsmouth in the south of England. And you mentioned he had some of the great uh, bands of the uh, yes, seminal did. bands yeah. of psychedelia, mm -hmm. uh, including uh, Pink Floyd, the, the first incarnation of Pink Floyd with, with Sid Barrett. And you were in the middle of a story and we before we were... <laughs> well. Yeah, he he just w w was so unpredictable, Richard. I mean, he just started singing that song, not not because I asked him to or suggested it. He just started singing it, and then as we were fading out to the ad, I joined in with him. And then <laughs> as, as the ad came on, we just giggled. Yeah, he, we did a lot of giggling on that show, Richard. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable how much we did. Especially after midnight. And and the thing about it was, too, Gordon, um, on Strange Days Indeed, when we'd be doing something like that, similar to what you're doing, uh -huh. and, and right now we're sitting in the studio, and I'm next to a microphone, and I'd be I'd be there in the studio, in the RB studios, and Errol would have his, his, his mouth to the microphone, but his arms would be flailing like an octopus, just and he would just be doing this weird contortions, but he'd manage to make sense. And I, I, everything that I could do, uh, to, yeah, I just had to push the cough button and just stand back and just watch this man in action. Uh -huh. So it was just a fascinating way of making sense and having fun at the same time. Oh, absolutely, yes. Gordon, thank you for spending some time with us, and I appreciate you contributing to our, our tribute to Arrow. It was fun, Richard. Thanks very much. All right, Gordon Finn. Um, we've got uh, one more guest coming up here mm -hmm. in uh, in a few moments, John Velez. Um, uh, but before we get to John, mm -hmm. uh, how would Errol or how did Errol uh, look at the uh, the disclosure movement? Which you know that is really whenever we talk about UFOs, it's all about disclosure, twenty four seven. It's disclosure, right. disclosure, disclosure. Yeah. Well, when the the idea before Stephen Greer um, brought about in two thousand and one. Um, b before uh, September 11th, when Greer brought forward all of these um, witnesses and at the um, at the National Press Club in Washington D.C., um, be long before that, the, the the disclosure word was a bad word. Errol would often say, well, "We can't use the D word on this show." You know? Really? Oh yeah, it was it was not something that uh, I think. Uh, was it w was was on his it was in his wheelhouse. I don't think that that was something he knew. The government knew what was going on, and and how they were handling it, but he did not attribute any credibility to anybody who had information uh, that, that that wanted to force the government to come forward. It, none of the information that he saw, in in his, in his estimation, was sufficient enough to really make this disclosure D, D word a capital D. Until when? He met Bassett and Greer? Yeah, I think he began to have them on the program. And as you know, and as we all know, those people who listen to interviews uh, that we've done with Stephen Bassett, uh, I think Stephen was the one who allowed uh, Errol to turn the corner on that one and really uh, you know, interview both Steve and uh, Steve Greer and Steve Bassett and really bring it to the forefront and realizing that this was another door that he had to open and, and walk through. All right, let's uh, uh, bring in... Uh, John Velez, another colleague of uh, of Errol's, and uh, John, 
um, began working in 1994 with uh, UFO abduction researcher author Bud Hopkins. Uh, John was the creator and webmaster of Bud's Intruders Foundation website. Uh, he worked uh, closely with the late Bud Hopkins for 10 years and then uh, met Errol when uh, he and Bud consented to participate in the WGBH production of Nova titled Kidnapped by UFOs. Here to tell us more uh, is John Velez. John, welcome to the program. How are you? Fine, Richard. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, so uh, uh, take us back to the um, uh, the uh, Nova production of Kidnapped by UFOs and uh, I guess your introduction to Errol Bruce Knapp. Well, I, I had met Errol prior to that, actually. If I can, if I have a couple of moments to tell that story, yes, please. that's interesting. Yes, please. Um, Bud Hopkins had called me one day and invited me to do a program in Toronto called The Shirley Show. It was some lady named uh, Shirley Solomon. Yes. Had an afternoon program. I don't know if you guys are familiar with oh, it. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. But we were, we, well, we were under the impression that we were going to be part of a panel discussion on a program that Bud assured me was the uh, Canadian version of Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and when, when we got there, we were uh, surprised to find out that it was more like the Canadian version of Jerry Springer. Mm. And um, they had uh, set up the stage in a funny way. I expected to be a part of a, a panel discussion. Uh, I expected the stage to be set up like in a horseshoe setup or, or some kind of a semicircular table or something, but they had the chairs right up against the edge of the stage, right over the audience. And right from the get-go, it was all shouting, yelling, screaming. Um, it was a horrific experience for us. The uh, producers of the program had emptied out a local bar in order to fill the seats in the theater because it was a live show and they didn't want to have any empty seats. So they brought all these drunk college kids in, offered them free tickets, and we had the most raucous audience you can imagine. It was uh, a horrifying experience for us. I mean, we were ridiculed, shouted down. It It was just a terrible, terrible experience. We didn't expect anything like that. Um, so you were totally ambushed. We were totally <laughs> ambushed, and I mean, they did a number on us. So anyway, by the end of the program, we managed to win the audience over. We explained to them why we were there, that we hoped to uh, you know, get some information out there for people who may have been suffering the same kind of experiences that we were having, to let them know that they weren't alone. We just wanted to be helpful. And the audience kind of came around, and we won them over, but that was only at the very end. So, you, again, the panel, there's yourself, there's Bud. Myself, Bud Hopkins, and two other abductees. Uh, Bud wanted to present his research material and then allow the uh, whoever the skeptics on the program were supposed to be interview us, his, right. his, his clients, and that's why we were there, to tell our own, to speak for ourselves. And when did anyway, you meet Errol? When did Errol come into the Well, <laughs> what happened was, it turns out that uh, a group from uh, uh, MUFON, Ontario, the Mutual UFO Network of Ontario, were in the audience. 
And uh, after the program, I was so traumatized by this thing, I ran from the green room because the producers were apologizing to us and, you know, offering to take us out for drinks. And I didn't want to even talk to these people. They had duped us. And I just wanted out of there. So when I got, walked out of the studio, I was by myself. I left Bud and everybody behind. I just needed to get some fresh air. And I popped the door open, and there was a group of people standing there. And I'm looking around, and I didn't know if they were the good guys or the bad guys from the audience. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. And there's Errol Bruce Knapp is standing right in front of me. He's this big, <laughs> glorious-looking man with this warm smile on his face. He had a twinkle in his eye, and he just opened up his arms to me. He didn't say a word. He just opened up his arms like offering me a hug. And it just warmed me up right away. All my defenses went down because I was paranoid. I didn't know who these people were, you know. (laughs) And I just ran over to him, and I gave him this huge hug. So that's how we met. I hugged the man before I ever said a word to him. Wow. Welcome to Canada. (laughs) My first words to him were a string of expletives that I can't repeat (laughs) on AM radio. Uh, that I whispered into his ear because, I, again, like I said, I had been—I was traumatized by the experience in the theater. A friendship and, forged in uh, war. <laughs> yeah, but when I grabbed him, when I was hugging him, I said, "You know, WTF just happened." <laughs> you know? That was like the first thing I ever said to him. And I could feel his body trembling with laughter as I was holding him. And that was it. We became good friends after that. They took us to dinner. We had a chance to talk and get to know each other. And uh, when the Nova business came up, um, it turned out that the producers of the the uh, Nova, the PBS Nova segment on uh, UFOs and abduction had spent some time with a fellow that ran a skeptical organization here in the States called PSYCOP. Yes. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this outfit. Oh, I've talked to all of them. Okay, well, it's a group of skeptics that just goes all over the country countering anything that has to do with uh, the paranormal, religion, right. psychic phenomena, UFOs. It's uh, what they do for a living. Well, they're not skeptics. And, uh, uh, Errol was a skeptic. They're debunkers. They, exactly. Well, uh, thank you. for <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but she had spent some time with Phil Class, who ran this organization, and he had kind of convinced her even before production began, that there was no way that she could responsibly present our case as having any basis in reality without scaring the hell out of the audience, mm. the, the, uh, the general public. And uh, by the time Denise came around to actually begin taping and filming the program, she was already of a mindset that she was going to debunk the entire phenomena, which is what they attempted to do. And it was a real hatchet job they produced. Um, Fortunately, I have a a, a Michelle Deschamps from Sudbury uh, had gotten a copy of this program prior to airing, and Bud and I had an opportunity to, uh, to view it first. And um, one of the one of the venues that was provided to us to allow us to get our side of the story out was Errol Bruce Knapp. I mean, he came in like a knight in shining armor. He had 
uh, he already had the ear of every major researcher in the field via his uh, UFO updates uh, email list, which at the time was private and for research people. Mm -hmm. And he also had uh, his program on CFRB, Strange Days Indeed, mm -hmm. which was a tremendous venue for us because it allowed us to reach the public and tell our side of the story before this hatchet job of a program that Nova produced ever aired. John, I gotta, yeah. unfortunately, we've, uh, we've run out of time. I'm going to have to ah. end it there. But, uh, John, I, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, amazing stories. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for letting me participate. I wasn't able to attend my friend's memorial service, and I'm so deeply grateful to you for allowing me this little bit of time to talk about him. John Velez, thank you again. All right, good well, night. good night. Uh, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News, uh, Zeland Communications, and uh, that uh, concludes our tribute to uh, Errol Bruce Knapp, and I hope he would have appreciated it. I'm, I'm sure he would. I know he's listening right now, believe it or not. Uh, he is. How would he sign off? Um, either eyes to the sky. Usually it was eyes to the skies. All right. Yeah. Let's leave it there. Uh, back next week with a brand new program. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Albert. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.